Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Jess Hill, an investigative journalist who has been researching and writing about domestic abuse since 2014. Jess was listed in Foreign Policy's Top 100 Women to follow on Twitter, and as one of the 30 most influential people under 30 by Cosmopolitan Magazine. We speak with Jess today about her book, See What You Made Me Do, Power, Control, and Domestic Abuse, and the issues it addresses with regard to how patriarchy constructs masculinity and its intersection with how society defines abuse, enables it, minimizes it, and misconstrues it. In our conversation, Jess and I also delve into the ways her book and research offers examples of success and disruption that are worth exploring. Welcome, Jess. Thank you so much. Very excited to be here. See what you made me do was something that resonated with me so much and with a friend of mine, actually, that we were saying when we were reading it, it was almost as if every single line that you were writing was worth highlighting because that's how I go through a book I highlight. And as I was preparing for this, I was just like, wow, every everybody needs to read this book. So I'm really honored to be able to talk to you today and hopefully to present your work to my audience and hopefully get the ball rolling with regard to getting more people interested in understanding about the issue of domestic violence and coercive control. Yeah. So I want to start with you as a journalist and how and why you covered this beat of domestic abuse in 2014. Was it something that was assigned to you? Did you volunteer to do it? Yeah, well, it was assigned to me. And it's because Australia in 2014 had this massive awakening. It was sort of like a a local version of Me Too um, in terms of the scales just falling off our eyes about domestic abuse. And that was triggered by the very public murder of an 11-year-old boy by his father. And it was so horrifying. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, I'm I'm publishing a version of this book um, for an American audience at the end of the year. And my American publisher, when, when they read about the event that happened in Australia that triggered this massive awakening, they were like, well, this sort of stuff happens in America every other day. Um, you know, but for Australia to have an 11-year-old boy murdered by his father at a public cricket pitch in front of other families, and then critically for that boy's mother the next day to front the media and to speak so eloquently and with so much love but about how family violence affects everyone no matter how nice your house is, no matter how much money you have, that nobody is, um, is safe from this. Something happened to Australia and it was like we suddenly wanted to know about domestic abuse. We needed to hear stories from people who'd been through it. We needed to understand what was happening. And at the end, so that, that murder happened in February 2014, and by the end of that year there was going to be a, um, a big inquiry into domestic violence and how the state was responding to it. And so I got commissioned at that point to write mainstream article that I think had ever been written about domestic in Australia. It was about four and a half thousand words. And I at first thought, yeah, it's a pretty important topic and yet we're all talking about it. But I thought, how am I going to write four and a half thousand words about, you know, a guy? 
guy going home from the pub, wife, what more? What is there to say about this? And I guess this major moment for me where I realized that there was a lot to say about this and more than I could ever fit into four and a half thousand words was when I went to this helpline, this um this phone line for um for victims to call into and I was in the counseling room for all these phone counselors and there was this sort of brief moment of silence. They get calls every two minutes. It's so busy there, but there was there was no call for a couple of minutes and so I just thought, oh I might just, you know, venture an observation and I said, um, you know, you must get so frustrated when you feel like a woman is ready to leave or she has left and then she goes back. And this phone counselor just looked at me really pointedly and said, no, I get frustrated that he promised to stop abusing her and then he did it again. And I was just like, oh, wow, that is such a better framing. And why don't I have that frame in my head? Why was I going to the action of the woman before I was going to the action of the man? And that just opened up this whole new landscape for me where I suddenly realised here I am, I'm someone who you know, has been a journalist for a long time. I consider myself to be pretty aware of issues and you know, reasonably intelligent, and I got so wrong. And I was like, maybe like all of us have gotten this so wrong. And if that's the case, then I need to like I need to dedicate some real time to understanding this and helping other people understand. And that was the beginning of yeah, what's now been five or six years, especially exclusively writing about domestic abuse. You were initially, you got into it because you were commissioned to do so. Are you, are you still commissioned or is your, are, are you just in the space where you've developed this expertise and people are still willing to hear these stories and they're giving you articles to write? Yeah, well, look, you know, I, so I wrote articles for, and, and radio broadcast for that whole year, 2015, and lots of really a lot of long form. And then in the beginning of 2016, I was absolutely burnt out. I'd spent six months investigating the family law system, which, as you know, is just a horror show. And I didn't know whether I could keep working on the subject at all. In fact, I just I wanted to take about a 10-year holiday. And <laughs> and I then I got commissioned to write the book. And I thought, oh, God, how am I going to jump back into this? But I knew it had to be done. Because at that point, you know, Rachel Louise Snyder's book, No Visible Bruises, came out last year. But prior to that, both in the States and in Australia, there'd been no book that talked about domestic abuse from like from a journalistic perspective, but for that like general audience that wasn't just for victims, that wasn't just for the sector, it wasn't academic. And so I was like, well, what if what if no publisher asks another journalist to write this for another 10 years? You've just got to take the opportunity. So I thought, okay, I'll do this but I'll do it in like six months. <laughs> I'll get it done in six months. And it took three and a half years. <laughs> but, wow. And now, just you know, the book has had such an incredible presence uh, in Australia that there's a television series that's adapting the book um, for our, one of our national broadcasters here. And I'm also doing a podcast over the next year and a lot of speaking. And US and the UK in hopefully August. So yeah, it's just kind of got a life of its own now. That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. When you first were commissioned back in 2014, am I to assume that you didn't have any experience 
in domestic violence personally, either through your own relationships or through your family and friends. And so you ha- actually had to go out and do research. That's why you connected with the helpline. Yeah. Well, so I thought that I had no personal experience with domestic abuse. And I think everyone who gets to this space for the first time goes through a rude awakening where they realize if they haven't had really intimate connection with domestic abuse, where they realize that actually a lot of people that they know and all throughout their family history, there is evidence of domestic abuse and that they just, they didn't know about it because they didn't ask about it and because people didn't talk about it. So I found a really surprising number of close friends had not only had family histories of domestic abuse, but some of them were actually going through it with their intimate partners. I found evidence that through my own family, things like an older relative of mine said to me after after the book had come out, she just sort of disclosed to me that her husband had threatened to kill her. That had never been part of our family narrative. No one had ever talked about that. So, yeah, it was really shocking. Um, I mean, I certainly researched it from the beginning as though I was just a journalist covering a subject, you know, and didn't think that I had any personal connection to it. But that, that fiction has now been... Assuaged. So, yeah, uh, every, every one of us has very close connections to this subject, whether we know it or not. One of the criticisms that a lot of people have about journalists who write about this issue is the way the use of language reinforces stereotypes against women and rape culture, for example. You know, the use of passive versus active nouns, whether the perpetrator's named in the sentence, um, whether the interrogation is fair, even-handed, whether it's trauma-informed, all those things. What kind of preparation did you do to make sure that you were going into this with the best possible lens in terms of bringing a new awareness to the issue that wasn't already captured by your peers? Yeah, so all of those points are really important. And I spent, it's probably why the book took so long. Um, because I spent a lot of time wrestling with uh, different issues around, for example, positive language. I mean, even even things like when we say two, like we'll say, for example, an American statistic, almost four four women are killed every day uh, by an intimate partner. And instead of saying that, I'd say, well, four men kill a woman they've been intimate with every day in the United States. Now, that felt like a radical act to write that because we're so used to foregrounding the victim in how we talk about it, as you say, that, that passive language. And every time I would do that in the book, I'd feel this sense of, like, discomfort. Like I was, it was almost like it was putting it right out there in a way that it wasn't hidden. You know, part of that passive language is about being able to hide. And when you make that language active and you put the actor right in front, it's actually quite confronting. Now, that, that was part of it, and I, I did an enormous amount of research on not only, you know, the, the very subject of, um, of domestic abuse, but, you know, academic um, approaches to engaging with survivors, especially feminist approaches to interviewing, and I made sure that from the very beginning of my interactions with, with people I wanted to include in the book was that not only was it respectful, but it was collaborative. So I first of all wanted to make sure that when we spoke about their stories, 
they were able to tell the story the way that it was important to them, that I didn't come to them with just a list of questions, that I'd have my questions, but I would hold them until the end. And I just let them tell the narrative how they wanted to tell it. You know, I wouldn't be asking them like, so, you know, at what point was there physical violence? I wouldn't be sort of cueing them to foreground things that might not be important to them. Because as we know, for a lot of women, physical violence is not actually the most important part of what happens to them or even the most terrifying. So I wanted to make sure that they could tell their story the way they wanted to. And then also that the whole process right up until publishing was that they felt like they had control over what parts of the story would be told and what parts maybe needed to be withheld for their security. So I made sure that they had access to the draft before it went to the publisher. And then we worked together to make sure that every word that was in that book was something that made them feel that they were okay with, that didn't make them feel threatened, and that made them feel like their story was being told accurately. So I wanted to disrupt the power relationship between journalists and source, which, you know, you can't eradicate entirely, but just to say, this is your story, it belongs to you, and I am just the messenger. The idea that you are working, quote unquote, in collaboration with some of the sources, I actually just had another conversation with a guest who's a journalist as well about the concept of being a journalist. Where do you draw the line between being a journalist and being an advocate? And Mm. I'm wondering how you would answer that. Like, do you feel that so much of what you're writing in this book, of course, is factual and presenting information that is newsworthy but then there's a edge to it that's pushing for readers to take action right and I guess in some ways maybe all news is about advocacy but are you comfortable Mm. with having that role? I don't know whether all news is about advocacy I think sometimes journalists will just present sometimes both sides of the situation Sometimes they'll be in opposition to each other and they won't actually give a clear indication of which side is right (laughs) or, you know, factual, which is, I think, a terrible form of journalism. In the past, I haven't necessarily been writing so persuasively. So it's been more about here's what I've learned about this sort of situation. Like it might be I did a lot of reporting on coal mining and resources and that sort of thing. So I would just be covering that situation without advocating either way. But with domestic abuse, I just, it was impossible to resist advocating because it, I just felt like these people need advocates. They need, like, it's not enough to present it dispassionately. And because there are so many ways in which we can confront this issue and help protect women and children much better than we are at the moment, I felt if I didn't take that information and advocate for it, that I was selling it short. I didn't set out with that idea that I would end up being an advocate. I initially just wanted to document it, uh, but I just feel like there's so much going on in space. There's so much that could be so revolutionary and so life-changing that I can't just step back and be um, an objective observer. Let's start with the book then. You divided it into 11 chapters, and the first one is The Perpetrator's Handbook which I think is great because it reminded me of like Lindy Bancroft's Why Does He Do That? In terms of giving you a blueprint of behaviors and helping people to recognize behaviors that we might think are, you know, Evan calls trivial or low-level violence, right? And so you refer to Albert Bitterman. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. He's a social scientist in the U.S. and he worked with the U.S. Air Force and 
he came up with something called the chart of coercion, which likens prisoners of war to survivors of domestic abuse. Before I ask you to delve into it, because it's called the chart of coercion, can you just address what definition of domestic violence is as you refer to it in your book? What Albert Bitterman essentially charted was coercive control. And it was the first time that that had been you know, truly anatomized and broken down to its fundamental elements. The thing about coercive control is that the very effect of it is like, for the victim, is, is like being in a fog, right? So even being able to discern the various things that are happening can feel impossible. And what's so amazing about vitamin's chart is that it, it basically drew divisions in that fog and, and was able to sort of really articulate what the various techniques, tactics were being used and how they came together to form a web of abuse. That one of them on their own was not necessarily that problematic, but all of it together was what created this effect of, of essentially getting as close to being in control of the victim's perspective and, um, and controlling their actions as, as a human is able to do. So he was talking about, as you say, prisoners of war in the North Korean, the North Korean camp um, during the Korean War, and it was the U.S. soldiers that were subjected to this. And he had no idea that this was happening in homes across America. He just thought that this was something that communists had used against American soldiers and that it was proof of the utter disdain that communists had for the sanctity of the individual. It wasn't until the 80s that um, Diana Russell, who wrote uh, Rape in Marriage, which was one of the first books on marital rape, that she put the um, vitamin part of coercion next to the common techniques of domestic abuse perpetrators and saw that they were virtually identical. So it certainly wasn't vitamin's intention, but when you read his chart of coercion, it's like you are reading about coercive control in, in the home. I mean, it's just it's a straight copy. And what we know now is that thanks to research that's been done over the last 30 or 40 years is that essentially this, this type of um, abuse is used in all sorts of different contexts. It's used in religious cults. It's used against political prisoners. It's used, um, you know, pimps use it against their prostitutes. So it is used in so many different contexts. It just happens that the intimate context in which the woman most, you know, almost um, uniformly um, is so trusting of the person that is using this abuse against her that it creates the sort of ideal circumstance for this abuse to flourish. Um, much more so than, say, in a, in a you know, prisoner of war camp where basically the people who are being held captive know that they're dealing with the enemy even if they're confused by their behaviour here. But women don't know that they're dealing with the enemy. That's not even on their radar. You know, the person that they believe that they know the best, the person they are in love with, the person they might have children with, the person they sleep next to. So that's, I mean, I think that in, in this whole scheme of coercive control and how it's used in various different contexts, the intimate context, using it in the home, is perhaps the most, insidious and the most damaging of all. And just so our listeners know what the eight different tactics are, do you happen to remember them or do you want me to? Okay. No, I can. Okay, go ahead. Do you mind if I just uh, tell you the tactic and then just briefly explain what I'm talking about? Sure, sure. 
well, the first, and it's not included, the eighth uh, technique on the chart, but was very fundamental in Biedemann's explanation of coercive control, is that you have to establish a type of trust um, or a type of bond. So for the US soldiers in the camp, that bond was established when they were first captured. So the communists, when they captured the US soldiers, would basically like would come and slap them on the back, give them cigarettes, say that they're friends of the American workers, or give them the idea that even though they were being taken prisoner, that they were not going to be harmed, that this was sort of a it's incredibly important to establish that kind of love and trust up front, because that's going to basically lay the foundations for what is to come. So the first technique on Butterman's chart of coercion is to isolate. And, you know, that's probably sounds quite familiar to certainly to people who've been through this. And that is that, you know, essentially, however the perpetrator does it, whether they do it geographically by moving them to a whole new location, whether they actually make it impossible for them to see family and friends, whether they just make it too hard. Like, you know, if every time you're asking to go and see a friend or you're having to have people over, if they start a fight or if they, you know, plead with you not to because they want to spend time with you or they just make it hard. You know, there's all different ways this might be done, but the the end result is to essentially make sure that the victim has broken or damaged a meaningful social and emotional connection. And that is so that the abuser becomes the most important and powerful person in her life. So they have to sort of eliminate external support you know, voices of support. That's the whole idea is because, you know, other people, as they start noticing what's happening to the victim, they'll start talking to the victim about like, you know, you're really changing, you're losing a lot of weight or you seem really quiet. They might start to alert her to that things aren't quite right. So that's that the first the first sort of technique to make sure that the victim is isolated. The second is to monopolize their perception. And basically what that means is to direct, redirect the victim's attention away from what's happening to them to what they are doing and their own emotional state. So that might be that, you know, the perpetrator is like, look, you know, I'm really sorry for the way I've behaved, but if you weren't so much like this, then I wouldn't do that. You know, or, hey, you know, I know we're having a really difficult time. I really want to make this work. Let's work on our problems together. But, you know, first of all, you really need to address X, Y, Z. And so what they're doing is basically trying to, the other the other really common tactic is to say, I am such a broken man and I need you to fix me. I need you. You are such a strong woman. You're the only one. Your love is what can help me get past this. So either way, whether they're looking at their faults or whether they're trying to figure out how to help their perpetrator, their attention is highly redirected away from what he's doing and towards that. When that's happening, it's much easier for him to sort of start to set rules, set ideas on how, what she should do, who she should see, how she should behave, because it's all supposed to be going towards making the relationship better or helping him through his hard time. So she doesn't notice that these rules are being set. It's all on the service of what seems to be, you know, possibly a good outcome. The third technique is to induce stability and exhaustion. And essentially what that is, is to just bewilder and exhaust the victim so much that just sort of just getting through each day is a struggle. Again, to totally redirect their attention away from what's happening to them, where they don't actually have the energy 
to really confront what's going on in their life and how their life is changing and how their perception of themselves is changing. So one of the most common ways that is done is through gaslighting, which is a term that's familiar to a lot of people now, which is basically that when an abuser knowingly denies, fabricates and manipulates situations, basically make the partner doubt their own memory and perception. And the point is, is that essentially, I mean, sometimes it's just denying something that's happened right in front of both of their eyes, like, you know, denying the fact that he's just hit her or denying the fact that he's just done um, a particular thing that both of them have seen. Or it can be as extreme as hiding the victim's key or moving, you know, their possessions to make them feel like, hang on, I know I put it down there, but now it's over there. And really, literally to make them feel like they're going insane. The next one is to enforce trivial demands. So Evan Stark talks a lot about this in his book, Coercive Control. And, you know, we're talking about things like one woman said to me, there was a certain time of day that the blinds needed to be drawn. Evan Stark talks about, you know, the fact that the vacuuming had to be done, particularly so that the lines could be seen on the floor. Other people have talked about the fact that all the cans in the cupboard needed to be facing the same way. Um, so it, it's this type of, it's demeaning, it's controlling, and it, it makes the victim uh, feel like she's walking on eggshells, like she constantly has to be aware of, of what needs doing. And the thing is with these trivial demands is that the point is that they're trivial, but they also change at a moment's notice. And so she's sort of got to see, she's got to be able to predict the next demand before he makes it to prevent either herself being punished or her children. And children growing up in these circumstances also have to do that. Um, and, you know, I talked to a number of kids in the book and they said, you know, a number of them said that they they were able to read their father's face. One, one kid said like an algorithm, you know, like he'd be able to tell when his father was about to blow um, by just a, a tick of the eyebrow, you know. and um, and, and that's when they'd know to be extra careful and when they'd know that there's about to be sort of a new rule set or a new demand made. The next technique is to demonstrate omnipotence. Now, you know, in the North Korean camp, the whole idea around that was to basically make the prisoner feel like there is absolutely nowhere that they could escape to, that even if they did escape, that their families back in the States would be in danger. Um, just to basically make make it feel like there's absolutely no option, but to also make them feel like they're being watched at all times. Same thing happens in domestic abuse relationships, and it can be quite, you know, what we might say as lo-fi, which is just texting, you know, dozens or hundreds of times a day, checking where they are, having the rule that unless you respond within a few minutes, then you'll be punished, that sort of thing, where you feel like you are constantly under that person's gaze. Or it can be more hi-fi, which is, you know, where there's actually stalking applications being installed on the victim's phone or on a child's iPad or a GPS tracker in the car where essentially the perpetrator knows their movements. They're able to, through these stalking apps that are publicly available, they're able to do everything from use the actual phone as a listening device, use the microphone as a listening device, they can track the location, they can access photos, messages, call logs, the whole thing. And the effect of this is not only that there's a feeling that no matter what 
the victim does, who she tries to seek help from, that he will know and that she'll never be safe. But it can also make them distrust their friends and family. And to give you an example of how that happened, there was a woman who talked to the BBC recently who said that she found out later that her phone had a stalking app installed on it by a partner, but he would just sort of bring up, you know, things that she told her friends in private that she's never told him. And when she confronted him about it, so how did he know that? He would say, oh, you told me. But, of course, she, she knew that she hadn't told him. So she started to think that her friends had told him, which isolated her even further. The next technique is to alternate punishments with rewards. And this is the point is that, you know, in the North Korean camp, it was that there'd be times where the captors would be really pleasant and would be making promises about how they were going to be treated much better and, you know, they're going to get out soon and creating that bond. Now, in domestic abuse relationships, obviously, there are plenty of relationships where it's never, it's sort of just unrelenting misery. But most, most will have periods of kindness. And, you know, we know that the cycle of violence has that whole model where you have an explosion followed by a period of remorse and then, you know, a false honeymoon stage, then a build-up and then another explosion, you know. And that's what this is sort of describing, describing those moments when the, when the abuser apologizes, they're never going to do it again, they're so sorry. Um, and those apologies may feel to the abuser like they're genuine in the moment, but then the whole cycle starts again. Um, and the effect of that is that these periods of kindness, they remind the victim of the person that they fell in love with. And they make them feel like that person is salvageable and that they and that with enough hard work and with enough expressions of honesty that they will be able to get that person back. Last two techniques on the chart are threats, just you know, pretty obvious. Um, the threats may not be that overt, they might be very like calibrated where it's hard to even know from the outside what, that they are being threatened. Evan Stark talked about one woman who was at a softball field and she was playing and having fun with her teammates and her husband comes out and says, um, don't you think you should put on a jumper? That was code for her that she had broken a rule and that was very threatening and she was immediately terrified um, that she was going to be punished. Now, no one... No one else there would have known that that was a threat. So what we deal with in force control is threats that are absolutely sort of hidden beneath the code in establishing a relationship. And then the last technique is degradation. And degradation is really key to force control. It's about basically reducing the victim to almost animal-level concerns, which is like just about being able to feel almost, I mean, there's, there's almost a feeling of being dehumanised. And the whole point of this is to basically make, as they said to, um, as Biederman said about the prisoners in the North Korean camps, to make the cost of resistance more damaging to their self-esteem than capitulation is. And this is why coercive control in the home is so obscene because when you're looking at degrading someone, what you need to be, you know, especially effective is to understand their secret shame or their secret desires, or what they hope for, or what they're afraid of. And in domestic abuse, like no other situation, the perpetrator has this intimate knowledge. So this is the knowledge that they use to precisely hone 
their degradation. And I don't know about you, but the amount of women that I've had come to me and just say that the physical violence was awful, but it was not the worst part. And it's been a real paradigm shift, I think, for the sector for the and the justice system is still very far behind on this. But to realise that actually degradation and all of these other techniques, none of which have mentioned anything physical, that this is the stuff that really ruins victims' self-esteem, ruins their mental health, and they can put them on a on a course or a trajectory for years and years. It's extraordinarily hard to get back from where it can start eating disorders, suicidality, depressive disorders, all of the drinking, addiction. So this degradation sometimes um, goes to a level of dehumanisation and really sickening scenarios that I heard of when I was researching the book, especially where mothers will be enlisted into the abuse of their own children. It's basically about making them despise themselves and further separating themselves from from their own instincts and making them feel like even if I were to leave, who else, who would help me, who would ever love me, I'm a disgusting person. But they're the basic eight techniques of coercive control. Another part that keep these tactics from continuing is the fact that, as you mentioned, coercive control is not a crime. So individually, none of these things is a crime. And even collectively, it's not a crime because our laws arrest, as you say, for discrete acts of violence. Yeah, and, the, and more to the point is that there's, because it's not a crime, I mean, you might have certain parts of that criminalised, like stalking. You know, if you can prove stalking, that might be criminalised. But the point is that everything is sort of reduced, it's atomized to this instinct-based um, type of framework so that, you know, police through to the actual justice system itself there's no reason for them to investigate the whole arc of the relationship so the context is often lost. And the context is everything. You know, the context tells you how severe this has been. The actual incident on its own does not give a clear indication of how severe the abuse has been. Um, you know, you might have what's you know, classified as severe violence, um, but if that's a one-off, you know, being threatened with a gun, if that happens one time and never again, the chance that, that person is going to recover from that and even that the relationship may even recover from that is much higher than if that person has been threatened with a gun at, as part of a whole system of coercive control. And that's what our justice system doesn't recognize. And you had also mentioned in another part of your book later that some advocates say that that's the hardest part, that they work with survivors on, which is regaining their sense of self, their self-esteem, and their ability to trust their instincts, as you said. Yeah. That's not something that we we value or measure, right, in, in this oh. criminal justice system. So to be able to create a set of practices to penalize someone... <laughs> for that is really hard as well, unless we're, as you mentioned, criminalizing course of control as a set of behaviors. That's right. And that, what they've seen in the UK, um, where they have criminalized course of control, is that police have, you know, the way that police will investigate an incident, if they're doing their job, is that they will ask all the questions to try and get it from start to 
what has happened in their relationship. They're not just attending an incident and saying what happened here in the last half hour, you know. Um, and so what they're able to do is find, like, you know, they are able to charge the perpetrator with, like, restricting um, a person's liberty or with, you know, constantly monitoring her phone calls or instructing her on what to wear or making her, you know, as as was the case with one of the first um, convictions under the new coercive control laws in the UK, um, one guy was, you know, forcing his partner to exercise um, to obscene levels every week, making her eat 50 cans of tuna a week and, and live only on that and beetroot, you know, in order to turn her into some bodybuilder. Um, those offences, which are not offences in America or in Australia, those offences alone, in addition to the physical violence, they got 12 months for this guy. But it's not even about whether he was imprisoned or not or how long for, but the fact that the court was obliged to hear the entire context of the relationship. And it was visible and it was under, and it was used to understand the severity of the physical assaults as well. Evan Stark talks about coercive control as a gendered liberty crime. And you consistently used the pronoun he for the perpetrator and she for the victim. Can you address those dynamics, those statistics, and why it is, why you're describing it in that same vein as well? Language is limiting. Um, and, you know, it's not the case that it's only men who are perpetrators and only women who are victims. But in, in coercive control, as different from other types of domestic abuse, where the violence is more reactive, where, where there is this system in place, it is in heterosexual relationships, the vast majority of it, perpetrated by men against women. Uh, in same-sex relationships, however, it may be perpetrated by men or women. So it's not as though there are only male perpetrators and only female victims, but when we're talking about it in the heterosexual context, it's aside from a few exceptions, what the research has told us again and again is that basically we're talking about male perpetrators and female victims. And what is it that these male perpetrators have in common? It's always troubling to try to categorize human behavior because there's so much gray area and so much nuance that, you know, we're inevitably going to leave people out. Uh, But essentially what we've seen in um, research studies, repeated research studies um, into the behavior of perpetrators is that we can kind of, we can kind of separate into very basic patterns. Um, and these three basic patterns seem to emerge time and again. So among coercive controllers, for example, you have two basic patterns and there'd be people who would sort of float in between these or that maybe don't quite um, align with either, especially people who have psychosis um, and other mental illnesses. But one pattern is the sort of cold and almost sort of like sociopathic abuser who is not necessarily that sort of intimately attached their partner but they're they're actually looking for an intimate partner that they can control that's the appeal of the relationship is to be dominant and the second type or the second pattern is a a perpetrator who is driven by insecurity uh, a fear of abandonment and morbid jealousy and so what they are rather than they don't see themselves as dangerous they don't see themselves necessarily as controlling, they see themselves as defending themselves against the partner leaving or against the partner disrespecting them. They 
commonly see themselves as victims first and foremost and that they are responding to a situation rather than I'm taking control because that's actually what makes me feel good. And in fact, a lot of them will will perhaps be quite conflicted about it, will go from a feeling quite powerful feelings of, you know, what they would consider to be loving feelings to then hatred, to um, despair, resentment, a much wider gamut of emotions and volatility within that within that cohort or within that pattern. And then outside of, so that's sort of like the two common patterns that, that emerge uh, who use coercive control. And to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, take the example of putting a GPS tracker in um, a victim's car. So the cold and controlled perpetrator, they'll put a GPS tracker in their partner's car because that's what they do in every relationship. That's their modus operandi. They control the perimeter. They make sure they know where she is at all times. That's just the, that's what they do. The second type, that morbidly jealous, insecure type, they'll put the GPS tracker in the car, but they'll do it because they're worried about her or they're worried about who she's going to see. They're doing it for her own protection. They'll have a bunch of different reasons in their head, but they won't see themselves as using it to control her. They'll see it as, oh, I'm using it to protect her or protect myself. But they're both doing the same thing. And the interesting thing about the Scottish legislation on coercive control is that it doesn't matter whether the intent was to control or cause harm or whether that was just the effect. As long as a reasonable person would assess that action as causing fear, alarm or distress, then there's no distinguishing between the two. And that really reflects what we know about perpetrators, that some do it instrumentally and others do it sort of more reactively. And then the other sort of pattern that we see in abusers is that sort of much more, I guess, people who aren't intent on control and domination, who don't need to control and dominate their partners at all times, that there's not this system in place, but who respond badly um, to conflict, who maybe are jealous, respond badly to that. There may be just a volatility in the relationship. And we're sort of talking about everything else besides coercive control. And there's a really wide gamut of things that go on um, inside that pattern. So that's, they're the basic sort of distinguishing features. When you talk about this blueprint for establishing power earlier, the, um, the chart of coercion, my conversations with survivors, certainly in my own life, there's these set of quote unquote abuser tactics that I like to use mm. where not maybe not all of them are being used, but it's almost universal in the way that power is established. And this concept of entitlement shows up a lot throughout your book. And yeah. at one point you even say it's the patriarchy, stupid. So can you talk about the interplay between patriarchy, entitlement, and either the establishment of power or, as you talked about with Ellen Pence later, it's not necessarily that they're driven by power, but it's rooted in entitlement. Yeah, that was a really clear and um, important distinction that she made, that this entitlement to have power over, that is the key and fundamental tenet of patriarchy. Now, it's something that men are rewarded for far more often than women are, you know, in terms of what we, what we assume to be masculine values, that type of like assuming control and having power over is a masculine value. So when women do it, they don't get sort of social reinforcement for it. Um, in fact, they often get quite the opposite. 
And I think that's part of the reason why men are more likely to use this, you know, type of system in a relationship. They're also able to, because the justice system is designed to protect men from power, but not to protect women and children from men, because the justice system so often colludes with perpetrators, it's much easier for men to install this system of power. I guess what really opened my eyes to the difference between men and women in this context was talking to the sociologist Michael Kimmel, who's done a lot of work on masculinity. And his whole thing about patriarchy is that patriarchy is like two-pronged. It's obviously men's power over women, but it's also some men's power over other men. And that to me was just this light bulb moment, this whole idea that like men are essentially in a, an ecosystem where power is a constant negotiation. I mean, we're all in that ecosystem, but where there's a sense of who is where in the pecking order. And what is also, though, bred into men from a really young age is this sense that they are entitled to power. They may be shamed out of feeling emotions or showing vulnerability or being soft or doing all of those things that are apparently classified as feminine but that the reward is that they are entitled to the power and control in society. And as Michael Kimmel said to me, it's like when we're talking about things like emotions lead to violence, like shame and humiliation, it's like, you know, women are humiliated and shamed all the time and they don't go off on shooting sprees as a result. And he said, you know, why not? It's because they don't feel entitled to be in power. So for for him, it's really the at the nexus of, of why a lot of men abuse is it's this combination of humiliation, of humiliated fury plus entitlement. So it's this idea that I don't feel empowered, but I should. When you talk about male violence against women or coercive control as a gendered crime, that also explains why the dynamics within same-sex relationships or violence over children or homophobia or racialized violence. There are all these elements of gender in those other tropes. And so it's not inconsistent to say that same-sex violence is also gendered. That's right. Well, essentially what Ellen Pence was trying to recast was that this is not about male privilege. It's about entitlement. As you said before, this is about the feeling that one has is entitled to have power over another person. And that is a construct that has been bred into us um, through the through patriarchy. That's what patriarchy tells us. When we look back at um, hunter-gatherer societies, I did quite an extensive investigation into Indigenous Australians pre-contact, but you have the same issue over it with Native Americans, with Canadian um, Indigenous And the point is that they did not come from a power over society. This was not about one gender having power over. It was about having power with. So there was interdependence, but there was also independence. And in Australia, for example, you know, the women during the day would go hunting and gathering food with with women and children. Um, They would feed themselves, and then they would come back and give the men the surplus. The men would much more occasionally go hunting for men and then bring that back to the family. But essentially, women had this, what was, you know, a type of economic independence. And so if they left, or if there was ever violence, 
against them, they had a bargaining chip, right? <laughs> like they, the men needed them to collect food. Like in Indigenous Australia, pre-contact Indigenous Australia or early contact, what was what was seen is that women, if they were in situations of threat, would often leave their partner and go and and stay with a relative or go stay somewhere else, and they would have to come back together because they were this interdependent sort of power unit. And we just don't have that, obviously, you know, patriarchy over the last 2,000 years and what, and what you know, conquered these hunter-gatherer societies was a system that basically puts control at, at its nexus, which is control um, in terms of trying to get control over one another, controlling nature, basically a system of dominion. And I guess what Ellen Pence was really recognising is that it doesn't, mean just because we think of patriarchy as men's power over women patriarchy is a system and as bell hook says it's not gendered you know if you are aligning with the principles of patriarchy and you believe that you have the right um, or that you're entitled to be in power of another person then that makes you a potentially dangerous person in a relationship Um, and it doesn't matter what gender you are when you talked earlier about being an observer of the family law systems and these stereotypes and these dynamics play out and why so many women choose to stay, as you stated, which is that they're afraid of the abuser getting custody. Can you talk about the ways in which these stereotypes actually are reinforced through the views of the players in the system, like the judges and the attorneys? You know, it's been interesting. Um, I'm, I'm yet to really look at this in the but I gather from my initial research that it's quite the same, um, it's going to be quite the same pattern. Um, and that is that in the 80s um, and even early 90s, there was a pretty strong movement around attachment theory and that children were really better off, especially when they were very young, being with their primary attachment figure, which was usually the mother, the majority of the time. Um, and that one had to be very careful about separating them even for a night or two when they were very young. And that really, I mean, even in Australia, some of the judgments in the early 90s are that in the if there's a chance that the perpetrator in that situation is going to use the wrong language against the, um, against the other parent, either while they're with the children or at handovers, that, that in itself was dangerous uh, for the child's development. And that that would be reason enough to deny contact or at least make it very um, restricted. Now, that flipped. In Australia, it flipped in the 90s. I'm not sure about in the States, but it certainly has flipped to be a whole different way of looking at the family system. And that was based on some sort of um, research that was done in the 80s and 90s, looking at the um, necessity for father, the, the influence of the father and contact with the father and that children would benefit from having a meaningful relationship with both parents. Now, of course, in a healthy um, situation, that is obviously true, but in situations where there's been domestic violence, the idea that those parents would continue to share parenting is, in a lot of cases, utterly absurd and dangerous for the children and dangerous um, for the victim, either physically or psychologically, and or both. And so what started to happen is there became this quite ideological approach in the family law system which was we must essentially make this contact happen between both parents and the children now you know 
on the face of it in legislation, um, they would say, unless there has been domestic violence. But more and more we started to see that domestic violence was being minimised or disbelieved. Child abuse was being minimised or disbelieved. Children's testimonies were being disbelieved and seen as a result of the anxiety of the protective or the victim parent or as a um, attempt from the child to make the victim parent love them more. I mean, basically any excuse you can imagine to basically frame the child's testimony as unreliable. Where it got to the point where even where there'd been convictions for domestic violence, suddenly it just seemed like that didn't matter and that the only thing that mattered was making sure the child had con- had a connection or contact with with both parents. Now, the more disturbing pattern that I've seen and that we see in the United States as well is that if if a protective parent, who's most often the mother but can also be the father, if they would persist in trying to stop contact, that con- that custody could be removed from them altogether and contact with them pro- prohibited for months, sometimes in the States I've heard of years at a time, and the children handed over to someone who they had openly said they were terrified of. And now in the States you've got an even more disturbing phenomenon known as these reunification camps where children will be sent away to camps with psychologists to reunify with the parent that they've apparently been alienated from um, in this whole context of what we call parental alienation, often against their will um, in situations where there may have been abuse in the past and where they have absolutely no contact with the other parent, someone who they may have seen as the only person who's ever been able to protect them. No contact with them for months or, as I said, years at a time. And what's, I guess, what is really weird about the family law situation is that while this is going on, the public mostly seems to believe that it is fathers who are mostly biased against in the family law system and that mothers are making up these claims of abuse in order to get an advantage. Now, in some situations, that may be the case. They may get an advantage. Um, but what I see more often than not is that disclosing or alleging abuse in a family law situation does not get you an advantage. If anything, it puts you at a disadvantage. And especially if the children make those disclosures, unless there is something really concrete, especially physical or extreme violence, it is extremely difficult to get anything prohibiting contact. Have you heard about Joan Meyer's research that was published in July? I have. You have? Yeah, but do tell, for your readers, because I can't remember, for your listeners, I can't remember. We interviewed her in episode nine, I believe, or and she is a professor at George Washington University's law school. She had a, a, a National Institute of Justice grant where she looked at 10 years of family law data, looked at victims' claims of abuse, child domestic abuse, child abuse, or child sexual abuse. She looked at whether the usually the father counterclaimed with parental alienation, and then whether the abuse was credited by the courts and then what the outcome was. And of course, in the majority of cases, the outcome, even when it was credited, was that the abuser got custody because the claims were either minimized or um, ignored. And then when you had guardians at litem or attorneys for the child or forensic custody evaluators involved, the rates of 
losing custody increased between three to six times. Um, you were more mm-hmm. likely, you know, to lose. It's been getting a lot of press in the spring to summer when her research started coming out and being cited in many places. And many of us who are protective mothers see this as systemic sex discrimination, obviously, because we have, everybody knows that there's rape culture in the courts. And then on top of that, you add, you know, not understanding trauma, right? And, yeah. and you talked about how children or survivors may behave in ways that are counterintuitive. So you talked about survivors sometimes punishing children in order to minimize the abuse that the child might get or to align with the abuser. And you also, similarly, the child may align with the abuser as a survival tactic. So these are, these are things that complicate the issue. But for those of us who live it, I think it's something that we can see very clearly. To what extent do you think training around these issues when there's still so much implicit and explicit bias is going to be helpful? How do we address the mistakes that are being made in the courts? Um, it's a tricky question because I think training alone does not fix culture. If you sit someone down who is fundamentally resistant to the idea of trauma and, and its effects on children or the idea that sexual abuse of children in families is actually relatively common, um, if you just sit them down and present that information to them, it's not necessarily going to change their minds. This is what we know. <laughs> is that just presenting facts to people, even people who are apparently interested in facts like judgment, does not necessarily change their mind or change the way they perceive things. It's more about having a cultural shift and part of that has got to be around accountability. And so what we have in Australia is, um, you know, family report writers, I think they're what you call the forensic investigators, mm-hmm. where they are basically write these reports. They cannot be named. Those reports cannot be reviewed by anyone outside of family law proceedings. Uh, it's extremely difficult to get um, any type of complaint up against them, even though they uh, should be subject to complaints just like any psychiatrist um, or health worker. So basically they act with a type of impunity. So, And the only if a judge makes a bad call in a family law hearing, the well, you have a right to appeal, but that's expensive it's very difficult to get any type of review done and there's almost no reviewing the the situation for the child after the family law orders are decided. So I don't know about in America, but certainly in Australia, once those family law orders are handed down, unless there is new evidence or some way to reopen that case, there's almost no avenue for the child to contest. So I've had children who have essentially been abused by their father after being handed in, into his custody, who've gone to the police and begged for protection. And the police have said to them, well, there's a family law order in place. There's nothing we can do. It's like they become t- totally separate, which is absurd because it's like if you're under 16, then as a child you are in the custody of your parents, whether there's a family law order or not. You know, I don't know what why family law orders suddenly make it so that police can't intervene or child protection don't intervene. But it does seem to be this force field that then operates around the child, which is extremely difficult to break out of. And I've had children who have literally threatened suicide and 
been gone so far with it that they've been put into hospitals and still they've been ordered to return to their abusive custodial parent. So I just I think what happens in the family law courts, a lot of people don't understand it. They think that if someone's got children, then they must have killed a parent. They don't understand the system that is, that is at play and there seems to not be that much curiosity about it. It feels like the final glass ceiling, you know, when it comes to patriarchy, the really unsmashable ceiling, which is the father's right to to his children, no matter what. You have one of your research subjects or interviewees is quoted as saying that the family law system is one of the most dangerous systems that a survivor or victim can encounter. Yeah. Because it presents also, it, not just a physical, real barrier, but a psychological barrier. If you know that you're not going to be believed and you can't protect your child, many survivors that I know who've been through the family law system have said that had they known, they would have just stayed with their abuser. Exactly. And I know a barrister who became a magistrate who stayed in an abusive relationship for 10 years after she was um, first abused and she first wanted to leave because she knew that she could not guarantee that she'd be able to keep her child safe and she stayed in the relationship as a supervisor, knowing that her child was not safe in the relationship but that the child would be even less safe if they were ordered into unsupervised custody with their abusive parent. So, And I just hear that time and time again because not only is it not certain what will happen even where there is a police record, a history of convictions, but it's incredibly expensive. You know, like we have cases here that go into the hundreds of thousands of dollars where people are having to sell, you know, their only assets, maybe like a parent's house, to continue to fund their case. And where women have told me that their ability to protect their children is totally governed by how much money they have. Right. Because people who don't have money, they just they sign consent orders. Yeah, I can tell you that many survivors and protective moms that I've encountered when we've run out of money, uh, and myself included, we've actually considered, like, can we sell our kidney? Can, is there an organ that we can sell to get legal fees to be able to continue to fight for our child? But, you know, it's like, why is this not a, a massive scandal? And the fact that it is the same across various legal systems in the States um, in England and Australia. And the New Zealand, all, New Zealand as well. It's all the same story. Yeah. You know, I think New Zealand, but I haven't looked into this, but I have a feeling that um, New Zealand has introduced some limitations um, that have actually been um, reasonably successful at mitigating some of the worst harms of the family law system. But um, I'm, not, I'm not across them in detail, but, but certainly in, in the States and in England, it's even more secretive than it is in Australia where you can't name a party to a family law case, even once the family law case is concluded. So you have a lot of protective mothers and even the children are having to operate under pseudonyms if they want to advocate. And so when we're talking about other ways in which victims and survivors rationalize their abuse, obviously one of, and why they stay, one of them is obviously children we just discussed, but you also cited Ferraro and Johnson. Yeah who named six additional ways that victims rationalize their abuse. And I'm just going to name them very quickly. You touched upon it earlier. One, I can fix him. Two, it's not really him. Three, it's easier to try to forget. Four, it's partly my fault. 
five, there's nowhere to go, and six, until death do us part. What are some of the ways we can address these issues from a systems perspective? Like, is there a change to the interventions and the services that we're offering, to the quality, to the quantity, to the scope of the services that can address these issues? Well, I present some sort of alternatives to our justice system approach in the book. And one is that I find really compelling are the women's police stations in, you know, what we call the Global South, kind of like Latin America. They're also in India. They're all over the world, actually. And essentially what they are is they are police. They have all the investigative powers and arresting powers of police, but they're staffed um, mostly by women. They um, they respond only to um, gender violence or domestic violence. Um, they have no other responsibilities. Um, so, and they also answer to an entirely different authority than the rest of the police. So their interest is not in protecting the state, protecting property. It's all about protecting people, um, which is actually quite a different mandate to what most police operate under, unfortunately. Um, and so these women's police stations, what they are is they're not like the, you know, they're not like the police stations that we're familiar with because they don't house criminals. It's not where they they don't bring perpetrators back. They don't have cells. They're basically like houses or shop fronts. They are, you know, brightly coloured. They have a range of services within them, not just police, but also psychologists, financial counsellors, um, legal assistants. They also have, you know, people there who will provide daycare or, you know, childcare so that if a woman wants to come in and make a statement, her children will be taken care of. You know, there are toys. It's basically an inviting space for women to come into at any stage of their concern, the response that they get from the police will be very much predicated on what they need. So it may be that they say, I just want you to come over and talk to him or I just want you to come over and get him out of the house or I want to lay charges. But it's not like what we have in the States and in Australia, which is either mandatory or pro-arrest policies where you, like, if something happens, you've got to go and make an arrest. In this case, it's about basically working with uh, the victim to find out what is the best possible outcome. And so the reason that's so successful is that women feel like if they go to the police, not only will they be believed, not only will they be um, received and have their reports taken seriously, but that they won't be locked into a system where their partner is then put through the criminal justice system necessarily, but that that is also open to them. So it means that they can start raising these concerns a lot earlier. So at the moment, what we have is a police force that is in the vast majority staffed by men. It's like something like 85% of sworn officers in the US are men. A lot of them won't have very clear understanding of, of the dynamics of domestic abuse. Um, unfortunately, too often, the sorts of responses that women will get are utterly incompatible with what they need. So those rationalizations, when they're starting to experience like they've been hit, say for example, or they are starting to feel like this relationship is getting more and more controlling, in people's minds, what what is their alternative? Like you can't go to police, especially if there's no physical violence. If I go to police and there has been physical violence, well my partner might be thrown in jail. You know, so having this in between seems to me to be an incredibly effective alternative and it's actually 
reducing domestic homicides. So I know in Brazil that they've done studies on neighbourhoods where these police stations operate and where they don't, and there's been like something like a 17% reduction in homicides overall, and then in the cities they found a 50% reduction in homicides against young women, 15 to 24. And the reason is that they were reporting earlier and they were getting help and they were getting advice. So they're welcomed into this women's police station and they're brought into an ecosystem where it's like they can learn about what's happening to them and then they can make decisions based on what works for them. You know, it's, that's, that's cultural change. And it's also part of what one of your interviewees described as how a strong justice response is what domestic violence perpetrators least expect. Exactly. And therefore, it leads perpetrators to believe that they're immune from consequences. And by creating this ecosystem, it shows victims that accountability is a priority. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's women's police stations is sort of one element. And then another element is sort of like, well, what's the sort of, what are the strategies to close those loopholes that show that perpetrators have this type of, that can act almost with impunity? And two American strategies that I look at in the book, one was focused deterrence, which is really about like a carrot and stick kind of approach, which is the community basically saying to perpetrators, we want to help you, we respect and love you, we want you to be part of the community again. What kind of help do you need? Do you need help with um, mental health, addiction, trauma, employment? You know, what is it? Do you need, do you need us to help you? Um, we will do our best. Um, to help solve your issues. Um, but if you don't stop with your control and with your violence, um, then the justice system is going to come down really hard on you. And the other side of the strategy is to have the justice system all aligned and on the same page as to what they, as to nominating domestic violence as the priority it needs to be and that it is, that it is one of the, it is the top reason in the states why people call police for help it's the single most common reason so what the criminal justice system say in high point where they had the strategy of focused deterrence working what they did was they organized working groups between everyone from the, the police to the local bureau of the fbi to alcohol tobacco firearms the federal marshals to parole etc and they basically worked on how to close all the loopholes that perpetrators used to fall through and in High Point, they went as far as to basically say, even if we can't get you for domestic violence, we will find something else in your record. We will reopen it. We'll reinvestigate it. And if we hear that you are being violent in your relationship, we will get you on something else. Like the, it's the, the Al Capone approach, right? You know, when he eventually went to jail, he went to jail for tax evasion, not for murdering countless people. But the point is he was stopped. And the whole point of what Focus Deterrence was saying is, if you cannot make the rational choice to stop your offending, we will stop you. Even if we have to jerry-rig a justice system that does not work properly in order to do it. So this is in High Point, North Carolina, you talked about. And even though you use the word or the phrase focused deterrence, I'm thinking it sounds a lot like restorative justice. I think they're all, they're all aligned. You know, I think that's what you, when you see these different strategies, what you start to see is that there may be fundamental differences, but essentially they all have pretty similar backbones, you know? And I actually like your restorative justice approach better. This example of High Point, 
rather than the ones that are being proposed in at least New York City and, you know, some other metropolitan areas across the country in the U.S., where there's this reliance on the rationalization that victims have used. Going back to the phrase, I can fix him. Mm. People, advocates in New York are saying, well, if survivors want to fix the abuser, we need to create interventions that help the survivor manage the abuser. Yeah, that's Yeah. And some of those interventions include, yes, believe it or not, therapy together. Oh, really? Yes. Another intervention is focusing resources, economic and time and otherwise, on helping the abuser not abuse, which includes, you know, you talked about triggers such as economic instability, losing a job. Mm. If abusers are going to be abusing more, when they lose a job, let's help him not lose a job. Let's help him have skills, acquire skills and training so Mm. that he'll be less likely to abuse. So those are some interventions that I think are not (laughs) victim-centered and that are cropping up very regularly in this discourse. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, the focus deterrence angle on that is it's like, that's all fine. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm definitely not an advocate of couples counselling. I think that's a horrific way to handle uh, domestic abuse because of the power imbalance. But it's all fine to be trying to attend to the issues that may be underlying the use of violence or the use of control. But unless you have something that says, if you don't, if you don't stop, then we'll stop you and your life will be a misery. <laughs> If there's not some alternative that says, like, unless you put actual work into changing, um, there'll be consequences, well, what's the motivation for the perpetrator? That's just another way that they can work the system. I totally agree. Staying in the relationship is what they want. So as we conclude this conversation, what is it that, looking back at all the stories and all the research, And all of the suggestions that have come up, gender equality has Mm. been repeatedly offered as a solution to domestic violence and coercive control. Mm. Uh, What are your thoughts about that? I guess everybody has different ideas on what gender equality means. And the tricky thing is that for me, gender equality hides the much broader and more inclusive notion of patriarchy. For me, gender inequality is just a symptom of patriarchy. It's just one prong of it. And when we focus all of our attention on on the different markers of gender inequality, like, you know, wage gap, etc., then we miss out on what is it that's driving men to do this? Why is it men more often than women? You know, like, why is coercive control something that is perpetrated in the vast majority by men in heterosexual relationships? So... That's my sort of quibble with gender equality being at the at the centre of this conversation. I think gender equality, yeah, like we're talking about gender equality through the justice system and gender equality in ways that enable or stop the disadvantage of women in these situations, that's great. But in the Nordic countries where we have, you know, as close as we're going to get to gender utopias in the next few years um, in terms of gender equality, the violence against women rates are still very high. And there was a survey done, a Europe-wide survey done a few years ago that showed that the violence against women rates in the top um, rating countries for gender equality were up around 30%, which is actually higher 
Um, it's about the same rate as the United States, but it's quite a lot higher, five or six percent higher than um, Australia. And so I don't think that those common statistical markers that we tick off when we're looking at gender equality, I don't think that's where we need to go. Certainly things around respectful relationships, I mean, all that sort of stuff that's being done in schools is important. But what we really need to address, I think, is this broader system of patriarchy and the broader system of advocating for dominion and power over. And that's why the Me Too movement is so revolutionary. And when people say, oh, but nothing's really changed, I just want to tear my hair out, because what the Me Too movement did, and I think the election of Trump really preceded this, was it made the whole system of patriarchy visible. You know, this thing that we sort of just accepted as unavoidable, sort of unfortunate, but unavoidable, which was, you know, when comes to me too, the sexual harassment and assault of women in the workplace, suddenly was utterly unacceptable. It's not to say that now all these perpetrators are in jail and no one's being harassed in the workplace, but there's been an absolute seismic culture shift around perception. And what patriarchy does and what, what we've learned under patriarchy and how we get socialised is that all of these, the, the tenets of it become invisible to us. So it's like this ghost in the machine, but we don't even know what is or isn't possible as an alternative. And what Me Too really showed us is that, like, well, actually, what is possible as an alternative is women not being assaulted or harassed in the workplace. <laughs> you know, why can't we work towards a world where that's possible? Now, if we talk about gender inequality, we're only seeing the structural problems that lead to harassment and assault, but we don't get a sense of why it is that men do this and they don't just do it because they want power and control there's other things going on for men because they are subjective individual unique human beings with their own backgrounds in which patriarchy plays an absolutely pivotal role in constructing and directing their emotional development and their maturing over time and their and the choices that they make so i really want people to start talking about well, I think people are talking about patriarchy, but really talking about it seriously in relation to domestic violence and saying, you know, patriarchy is a system that harms men and women. These men, even though they may be seen to benefit through the legal system, they may be seen to even benefit in their relationship, these abusive men are essentially living miserable lives. Like how many of us look at their lives and go, gee, I wish I had that. You know, like it's not enviable and if they come into um, contact with the justice system in a way that, that has them detained or punished, I mean, this is the sort of stuff that ruins men's lives and at the very least has them absolutely cauterized from love and intimacy from their family. That's not a life that any of us want. So we need to start thinking, I think, about what it is these men as miserable human beings who just can't even imagine an alternative to the way that they interact in intimate relationships. And just how sad that is and what can we do to raise men and boys who don't think like that anymore? Well, my podcast tagline is, we teach feminism to decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. So my belief is that feminism is the key to everything. We just need to raise our boys and girls to be feminists and liberate ourselves from patriarchy. Absolutely. And, you know, part of it, it's not like to say that hunter-gatherer societies who were, you know, there before colonization were perfect, but they were sustainable. There was 
this idea of patriarchy. When we talk, when we talk back about historical examples of societies and we look for the alternative to patriarchy, people go, oh, so where was there a matriarchy? It's like it's not actually about finding societies where one group had power over the other. The whole point is about finding those examples where power was not about power over, where power was something to be shared, where power was something to be negotiated and explored. And that's what a lot of these hunter-gatherer societies have in their in their DNA. And it's stuff that we can still learn from. It's like patriarchy is not natural. It's not like just an in, unavoidable, inevitable consequence of human relationship. Well, this is a great segue to our concluding questions that I ask every guest at the end of our interviews. The engendered questionnaire, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Everything. I think, and we're seeing much more of this um, in the last few years, that all of the major issues that we're dealing with in the world at the moment, uh, be it environmental degradation, climate change, war, gender-based violence, these are all connected. And it's the value system that is wrong. It's not necessarily just the level of emissions or just gender inequality, et cetera, et cetera. I actually think that the damaging effect of patriarchy and the centering of power over as the way in which we come at uh, interpersonal relationships uh, and the world, this is the absolute nexus point of what is going wrong. And that actually what we see when, when there's strife and conflict and when there's disasters and when people's lives are on the line, like what we've had in Australia with the bushfire crisis, which has been unimaginably horrific to live through, what happens is people work together, they collaborate, they help each other. They do that because it works. It's like this whole power over thing that we've got going on, we think that it works, we think that we'll benefit in the end if we're able to suppress somebody else or if we're able to get more than somebody else. In the end, that's not what counts <laughs> and you can't take it with you. It's like what counts and when, there are, when we're really up against the wall, what humans do and how we benefit is that we collaborate, we work together, and we help each other. That's what works. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is looking back at the history of how impossible things were achieved. And Rebecca Solnit's Hope in the Dark has been helpful. <laughs> Sometimes when I felt like that's a little bit harder to um, hang on to, but that nothing... No good things that have happened have been inevitable. They've been fought against the odds and that, yes, we are fighting against the odds right now, but if you take a broader look at the social changes that have happened in mindset, not for everyone, but for a really large percentage of the population, even if you look back to like 10 years ago, the conversation that we're having, say, around Me Too or women's rights absolutely dormant we just have to take advantage of these awakenings in consciousness and that's what I'm trying to do is that like all throughout modern human history we've had rising consciousness falling consciousness things get better things get worse now we have a very pressing issue which is like if things just continue to get worse on the climate change front well we don't get a second chance that, that, that potentially starts in train, something that is unstoppable and where you don't get at a couple of hundred years to work it out. So what I think right now is we have this opportunity where we have consciousness 
We have will from a lot of people and what we need is collective. We need people to realise their power as a collective and to stop thinking in this atomized, individualistic way that patriarchy breeds into us. And that's what we, we don't have time to be individuals anymore. There's not, we don't have time for that. So what gives me hope is seeing examples of where that is happening and where it is changing things. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? We can do more of actually committing to reduce it. Um, We can do more of actually setting targets. In Australia, we have a national plan to reduce violence, which unlike any of the other national plans around reducing smoking or alcohol use or whatever, does not have a single target in it. It doesn't say we're going to reduce homicide by 20%. It doesn't say we're going to reduce repeat victimization by a certain percent. And so there's nothing to actually work towards. So we need to believe that reducing it is possible, first of all, like they did in High Point. Then we need to declare it as the public health emergency that it actually is. Essentially, what we need to do is start telling the truth about it. It starts talking about how fundamental and central it is to our society, how it is affecting so many of our children and and, and existing in so many of our homes, how it is taking up such an epic colossal amount of police time and how that only represents a certain percentage of assaults that are even reported. So when the High Point police chief finally came out and said domestic violence is the number one public crisis, our number one concern, and we are going to do everything in our power to reduce it, that was a fundamental point in their strategy to reduce it because they had to be publicly accountable. And at the moment, I just don't see that sort of bravery coming from too many sectors, but that's what we need. And then we need to collect the data, know what's actually happening. We need to unite the justice system with the community sectors so that they can educate each other and they can be on the same page about what's happening. We need to absolutely make sure that the deterrents are in line and are actually compatible with what women go through, i.e. we need to make coercive control a crime. Um, And then we need to enforce it. And we need to make sure that the family law system is making decisions that are in the best interest of children. Because if you have all of those other factors working, but you have a family law system that is still as broken as it is and is still as unsafe for children as it is, then you may as well not worry about fixing any of it. Wow. I love all of those ideas. I agree with all of them. And I hope that you can consider me part of your collective. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's been a real privilege to speak to you. And um, I'm really looking forward to hopefully we'll be in the States in August or September, depending if the publishing schedule loosens a little. Um, and, um, and yeah, carrying on these conversations um, in the States. Well, I'll definitely make sure to share with our listeners your schedule, your book release. And in the meantime, listeners can listen to this episode and hopefully get a sense of what they're going to be looking forward to. So thank you, Jess. Awesome. Thank you, Terry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. 
please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Thank you.